Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Here we go once again, you guys. For another solo episode of the Two Tongues Podcast, where Chris comes at you to tell you a bunch of shit that he finds interesting, and I hope you do too. Got something for you a little different today, as soon as I get this up here. Here we go. Alright, so, I had a um, a twist of Twitter exchange with somebody, it was a little bit serendipitous, so you guys may remember, I did uh, a handful of episodes uh, a year ago or so on... Uh, uh, Peter Shirsted Hughes' uh, book, Modes of Sentience. Um, I have his older book here that's on the on the reading list, uh, Pneumonautics. So I'll be getting to that at some point. Who knows when? Um, but that uh, experience, reading through um, Modes of Sentience, uh, introduced me to Alfred North Whitehead, and I've been talking about him for many, many episodes. Um, I probably have a handful left before I wrap it up, but um, I've been getting into this this philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, his very unique position, uh, what he calls process philosophy, something that's been adopted by a lot of religious thinkers. Um, they call it process theology, uh, and I can definitely see why. Um, it's a relatively modern metaphysical system. Um, the gentleman who wrote it was a mathematician, um, so somebody that uh, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect to be the speculative type you'd expect to be um very structured in their thinking and uh um he says some pretty out there stuff and stuff that i quite like so so i read uh alfred north whitehead and i'm still reading it um and i'll send some uh tweets from time to time to uh to dr shirsted hughes sometimes he'll respond sometimes he won't um but he he's an expert on whitehead and has been studying that um and psychedelics for um you know his his professional career um, at one point, I bumped into another another account on Twitter called Footnotes to Plato. Uh, Footnotes, the number two Plato. So at Footnotes to Plato, if you're interested on Twitter, that's how you can, can get a hold of the guy. Um, but if, if you have followed the Whitehead lectures, you kind of know where I'm going. Uh, that phrase, Footnotes to Plato, is a, it's a well-known quote from Alfred North Whitehead who said that all of Western philosophy is... Um, but a series of footnotes to Plato. And, um, you know, I've read some Plato. Uh, we've done some Plato Plato chats on the podcast before, along with some of the pre-Socratic stuff that we did in the early days. And I have to agree uh, to a large extent uh, with that statement. All of Western philosophy is but a series of footnotes to Plato. So obviously an homage to Whitehead. This guy uses footnotes to Plato as his Twitter handle. And um, uh, one of the things I tweeted out about Whitehead, and maybe it was a question because I have lots of them, um, he responded to. 
So just like any exchange on Twitter, you bump into somebody new like that and um, seems like a really nice guy. Um, and he interacted with me a bit on uh, Twitter. So um, one of the things he did was he said, hey, um, I have a video on Steiner, Rudolf Steiner. And that was a person that we did a couple of episodes on before I, I read uh, one of his books. Um, trying to think of the title, something about higher worlds. Anyway, um, I'll give you a little recap on Steiner, but... Uh, but he mentioned something on Steiner, and I was a little bit surprised by that. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I was introduced to Steiner on um, Discord, right? So it wasn't something that I heard on Twitter. It wasn't something that I bumped into, you know, like uh, reading philosophy. Hey, this person influenced this person. You might want to check them out. It wasn't like that. And I found that the reason it wasn't like that is because Steiner is not considered a reputable philosopher today. And when you go and you read his stuff, you can see why. I mean, he falls into the same pitfall that other great thinkers have fallen into. Um, people like um, Alfred Wallace, the guy that co-published the theory of evolution with Charles Darwin. Uh, he became mystical in his old age, and uh, he got written, written out of history. I mean, most people know Darwin, but don't have any idea who Wallace is. Um, that happened uh, a bit to Carl Jung, um, I would say, and some other really, really great thinkers. Um, and it, it happened to Steiner. And uh, when I read uh, the book that we talked about on the podcast uh, earlier in the year, I sort of figured out why that was. So if you remember, Rudolf Steiner was, by the way, he lived, he, his life overlapped with Carl Jung's life almost exactly. Uh, a tremendous amount of the ideas that he talked about um, in that book, um, I saw parallels in Carl Jung. And I absolutely love Carl Jung. I, if you listen to the podcast, you know that we we had did a little journey together through Carl Jung's Red Book, and uh, we also did a bunch of well, you remember the Jung's Greatest Pupils series that we did, which was von Franz and Neumann and uh, and um, Edinger. Um, so we did a whole series of those. Um, absolutely love it. So you can see that I would have some reasons to like Steiner, and I do like Steiner. But as I read through it, I thought it's not just stuff that would that would fall into the depth psychology area that I like so much. Um, it's not just stuff that falls into this sort of peripheral religious conversation, which I always like. Um, it was mystical, and I like that. But it's also a little out there. And when I say out there, you know, Joe Rogan comes to mind a little bit of woo, you know, maybe a lot of bit of woo. And um, I found myself over the last several years, becoming less, um, becoming more accepting of Wu, I'll put it that way, um, less likely to write it off. And, and I recognize that about myself, that I have this tendency to write off uh, things that I would consider Wu. Um, some things that are on that borderline uh, for me, I still want to write off are things like chakras and uh you know, energy points in the body and crystal energy and, uh, uh, you know, just new, new agey type of type of stuff. And one of the things that falls into that new agey category, and I, maybe I should say some of that falls into a, um, Indian philosophy category as well. A lot of the chakras and stuff that comes right from, from the yogi tradition. So, um, the way it's been co-opted by this new, new wave, um, new age movement, uh, is something that I don't put a lot of credence in, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't believe in you know reading palms or telling the future or 
things like that. And I don't believe in chakras or energy in the way that, that they, they present it. And here I, here I find Steiner saying all this very interesting stuff that I agree with and that I'm interested, I'm intrigued by. And then suddenly he starts talking about auras, being able to see uh, glowing auras on people and on, on objects. Um, and so if you remember the Steiner chat, that's where I started to lose it. I'm like, nah, I don't know about this. Um, but it's not so simple. It's like um, Carl Jung in the Red Book talked a lot about that too. He said, um, he said that when he went into his soul and he found it a barren desert, uh, this was, again, his, his thought experiments that he was doing with himself, these meditative kind of thought experiments. And he says he, he visualizes uh, going into his soul and it being like a place. And the place is a desert and nothing is growing there and nothing is happening there. And he admits that it's, it's like that because of him. Because Carl Jung didn't spend any time with himself. He didn't know his own soul. He didn't spend any time in his own soul. He spent all of his time and put all of his attention on the outside world, on learning, and, um, uh, and, and, and you know, he, he failed to, to put any of that effort into understanding who he was or what he was. And he didn't do any of that introspection. And when he started to, he's like, there's nothing here. But the more he practiced that and the more he returned to this visualization of his soul, the more started to emerge from that. The, the blades of grass started to emerge from the, from the desert and he started to encounter images and then eventually people and then have conversations with them and then have these you know, entire adventures that would happen in this sort of dreamlike meditative state that he would do, this active imagination is what, is what he called it. And this is exactly what Steiner said in different words. He said that there's a whole lot more to what human beings are capable of. And there's a whole lot more to our experience than we realize. Because we do not exercise our spiritual faculties. right? We, we exercise our muscles, we exercise our brain, we exercise all sorts of things. But we don't exercise our spiritual faculties, at least, at least not anymore. Like maybe there was a time when we were much more like that. I like to think about the way that tribal people lived uh, very close to nature, you know, worshiping spirits, this sort of animism idea and shamanism idea, that those people had a blending of their spiritual realities in their waking life, in the actual world. And I think there's something so beautiful about that. Um, I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's, wrong or fake, I think that there's something real to that. That if you have um, developed sort of your spiritual faculties, that there might actually be more to the world than what we generally experience. Now, I don't know what form that takes. I don't know if it's that you see things that you didn't used to see. Maybe you feel things you didn't used to feel. Maybe maybe intuition becomes stronger and more prevalent. And that's something that's happened to me since, since I had my own mystical experience. Um, intuition, that's something I would have written off. Literally. Didn't think it was real intuition. Um, but I do now. Um, so the way Steiner talks about this is exercising your spirit, spiritual faculties. And he talked about all kinds of ways that you can do that. And I talked about it in those podcasts. If you want to go back and re-listen, there's certain exercises that you can do. 
And, um, and he basically said that if you do that, eventually you're going to start to see a world and experience a world that you didn't, it's different from, from your waking life. You're going to see energy. You're going to see it. And I don't know whether that means you see it with your eyes or you feel it or sense it in some way that's, that's, you know, non-traditional, but that you will see and experience energy and emotions and intentions. And, uh, that's something that will manifest as glowing colors around people, let's say. And you'll learn to read those colors like a language. And I think that's so fucking cool. I also think it's hokey and woo and probably nonsense, but this is so, this is a fight I'm having with myself. You know, I don't know. And every time Steiner says something I like, he says something like that. And I just, I really struggle with myself and I, I struggle with it with Jung too. And so when, um, when at footnotes to Plato, whose name is Dr. Matt Siegel, when he brought up Steiner, I thought to myself, here you have this uh, PhD philosopher who, um, you know, is an expert on Whitehead, um, who I respect, you know, tremendously, bringing up Steiner in the context of Whitehead. And I'm, I was just surprised. I'm like, you know, this is some, somebody who some people consider a great thinker or a great philosopher or a great mystic. And other people think that he's not credible, that, he, that it's a bunch of woo, that it's not scientific, uh, not empirical, um, you know, that it borders on the religious. A lot of scientists, a lot of academics, you know, they sort of lean towards atheism anyway. They wouldn't write all of that stuff off. But Dr. Siegel didn't, and I thought that was curious, and I told him that it was curious. And uh, he was like, why? Why do you think that? And so I, I brought up auras. I'm like, look, this is why I think that. And he said, maybe you want to watch this, this lecture I did. So I did, and I want to talk about it with you. Um, if you go to footnotestoplato.com, you can find Dr. Matt Siegel's um, uh, work, uh, his books, um, the podcast that he's done, uh, and these lectures. And... Um, uh, so this, this is the one I listened to. Um, it's based on a lecture that Steiner gave in 1914 uh, called lecture, uh, Lectures in Human and Cosmic Thought. And I think it was a multi-part lecture. This one was called The Possibility of Contemplating the World in 12 Different Standpoints. And then what we had in this lecture is not really a lecture. It was a conversation. It was Dr. Matt Siegel and Dr. Robert McDermott. Uh, so Matt Siegel and Dr. Uh, McDermott uh, both, um, at, at least at one point, worked for uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, both PhDs. Um, I think Dr. McDermott was the former president. So we've got kind of the young, the young guy and Matt and the uh, kind of the sage guy with, uh, with Robert. And they're going back and forth um, about, this, about this lecture, focusing mainly on this idea of uh, the world as conceptualized in these 12 different ways. So I'll jump into this and we'll talk through it. Um, one of the things that uh, Dr. McDermott said was he quoted Plato, which I think is appropriate since we're, since uh, Dr. Siegel is a fan of Whitehead and Whitehead defers everything to Plato. Um, Dr. McDermott said uh, that, that thinking begins when conflicting perceptions arise. And we're going to be doing thinking today, um, based upon conflicting perceptions. So conflicting worldviews, ways of looking at the world, ways of understanding yourself and the world and your place in it. Um, so, so Dr. Siegel 
defines what a philosophical worldview is. Um, so I'll use his words, but I'll paraphrase a bit, but I'll use his words here. Um, he says, uh, worldviews, how we conceptualize individuals, how they relate to each other and society, how we conceive of the possibilities of action, whether we're free or not, what the future looks like. He says, often there is a religious component. How do we make meaning and find our sense of personal destiny, along with scientific aspects? And all of that colors the way that we understand the world, the way that we see the world. Maybe it, it limits the way we see the world in certain ways. And, um, and Steiner proposes that there are 12, 12 general philosophical worldviews, 12 different ways of viewing the world. These are kind of basic categories of consciousness with a historical progression, um, as Dr. Uh, Siegel says. He also says that Steiner corresponds each of these 12 worldviews to the Zodiac. So this is one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I'm interested, 12, 12 different ways of viewing the world, 12 different philosophical paradigms, okay, I'm interested, and they correspond to the Zodiac. Motherfucker, there I go. I go deep into the woo. I feel like I, I feel like, you know, there was dangling a carrot. I fell into a trap. This happened to me again, that kind of thing. I immediately want to write off the Zodiac because I think of what everything, everybody else is thinking about. I think of astrology. I think about the procession of the equinox. I think about, you know, um, I think about Shakespeare. Um, I'm now, now I'm failing to, failing to find the quote here. Um, but about, the. Um, uh, you know, oh shit, I can't think of the quote. But, you know, about the stars under which you were born kind of um, predicting the course of your life, that sort of thing. Um, then then Dr. Siegel shows, um, basically on the blackboard behind them, what he calls a cosmogram. Never heard that word before. Um, but he ups the ante and calls it an anthropocosmogram. And what that means is, is it, it's a symbol, it's an image that's made to illustrate simplistically um, what the world is made of. Um, so cosmogram, you know, what, what, what the cosmos or what our experience is, is composed of or how you can categorize that. Um, and, and anthropocosmogram is just looking at not just the cosmos, but humans' experience of the cosmos. So it's really much more about um, our experience and defining our experience. And it's just real simple. The image is a circle divided into four sections, and that's sort of subdivided into smaller segments, but that's basically what you're looking at, a circle with a cross in the middle. And uh, what you have on opposite sides um, of these kind of uh, um, quartiles, or whatever you want to call them, you have spiritism on one side and materialism on the other. So they're on opposite axes, as you might say. Then we have idealism on one side and realism on the other side of the other axis. So X, X and Y are, are split up that way as opposites. Spiritism and materialism being opposites. So I don't know what that brings to your mind, but um, spirit and matter, I mean, that's sort of a Descartian dichotomy um, and a little bit of alliteration for your ass. Um, so spiritism and materialism, um, you know, emphasizing spirit and emphasizing matter. And that's the sort of modern-day scientific religious conundrum. And then idealism and realism on the, on the other side, which is really not that dissimilar as far as I'm concerned, um, that, that break, it, break, the, break up this cosmogram into four 
quadrants that illustrate um, philosophical worldviews that are tied to, as Dr. Siegel says, willing, sensing, feeling, and thinking. So that's how these four quadrants are organized. Um, Remember, this is an anthropocosmogram, so we're looking at human experience. And human experience is um, divisible into these four basic categories. Willing, sensing, feeling, and thinking. They also say, both McDermott and Siegel, that opposing worldviews enhance one another. And when you push one worldview to its extreme, you discover that it is connected to all the other worldviews. And that's interesting and beautiful. Because what that's, what that's saying here is that what seem to be opposites are actually not only opposites, but they're complementary. It reminds me of Taoism. It reminds me of a Taoist phrase, who I'm probably going to butcher from the Tao Te Ching, but it says um, that, that beauty can exist without the recognition of ugliness. It's like you need the opposites or you have nothing. If everybody in the world was beautiful, nobody was ugly. Everybody was beautiful. You would have no idea that ugly had any meaning at all. It just doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, does beauty exist? No. Because what are you contrasting beauty to? Beauty has no meaning apart from the contrast with ugliness. So you lose both. And, and he's saying here that opposing worldviews enhance one another. And I think that's what he means. You know, the more you, the more you push yourself to a materialist um, understanding of the world, the more it helps you to understand what you're objecting to in spiritism. You know, the more you, the more you go towards the idealism side of the spectrum, the more you know what you're objecting to with realism. That better you understand realism. And so they complement one another. They're not actually different things at all, and this is something that is symbolized, I say this many times, but symbolized in our religious traditions as the Ouroboros, you know, what Carl Jung calls the syzygy, the, the generative union of opposites, that opposites aren't different things, but one thing, that they're mutually counter-existing, um, something like that. So he's saying all of these are, are connected, and you can imagine that our human experience is one experience. It's a unity. It is certainly connected. But we do still have the ability to differentiate between willing, sensing, feeling, and thinking. You know, they're not identical things, are they? And yet still unified in human experience. Then Dr. Siegel says something interesting that I agree with, and I want to read to you. He said, in our postmodern world... We all have private worldviews that fits our biases and prejudices. We inhabit a solipsistic space where we're unable to communicate with people. Different forms of identity that prevent us from understanding others. And then he says, there is danger in relativism. Okay, so this is pointing out that this world we live in where all of our worlds are siloed, you know? Um, we don't have as much interpersonal interaction with each other. We're doing so much more online through virtual meetings, living in our social media. Somebody just said the other day, I asked them if they went to their high school reunion, and they said, no, you don't really have to anymore because we all, you know, the people we care to keep up with, we're friends with on social media. We, it's not like we bump into someone we haven't seen for 20 years and we say, oh, my God, what have you been up to? We all know what we've been up to, you know? So... 
we've lost this this ability to even communicate with each other. And you can see that when you when you look at young kids. I'm sure Dr. Siegel teaching these high school graduates, these you know uh, new high school graduates, um, he probably sees that all the time. And you know we all have to develop our social skills. It's not like we come out of high school and we're you know. Uh, you know, we're, we're experts at writing and thinking and speaking. It takes practice, but you can definitely see, and I see, the difference between, let's say, the way my uh, my parents are, the way I am, the way I was when I was uh, younger versus the, the kids that I have, uh, you know, experience with today, my my, nep- my nieces and nephews and, and uh, uh, my cousin and, and so forth. Um, they don't know how to talk to each other. They don't know how to communicate with each other. They don't share a common world. Everybody has their own private worlds. Okay? Something like that. And so if we don't have any commonality, if we don't have any common identity that brings us together, um, you know, that's the, well, there's dangers to it, right? We can't, we don't exactly speak the same language, you know? You know, just listen to a lefty and a right-wing person try to have an argument, and pay attention, stand back and pay attention and notice they're not even having the same argument. And then they're not even using the same language. And even when they are, oftentimes the language that they're using, the common words they're using, they don't understand them the same way. Now, violence is a good is a good one to bring up. College kids like to say silence is violence and uh, microaggressions and all these different things did not exist when I was a kid. Violence is violence. You know, you, my father used to tell me, um, you know, don't be a bully. Don't, don't fight anybody, you know, mind your P's and Q's. Um, but if somebody puts their hands on you, beat the fucking shit out of them. Make sure they never, ever even think about doing that again. Make an example of them. And there's a part of me that thinks, yes, that's exactly right. But you have to put your hand on me first. Words aren't going to do it, you know. Um, marginalizing me isn't going to do it. But the moment you put your hand on me, all bets are off. You're getting punched in the nose, my friend. And, uh, you know, that's violence. So you get the idea. You talk to an 18-year-old kid now, he will not agree with you one bit if that's how you define violence. Uh, this is what I mean. We need some sort of unifying identity. You know, something, something like I remember happened after 9-11 when everybody in America suddenly was hanging an American flag out of their, uh, out of their house. And... Um, you know, people that you would usually have political differences or maybe um, racial differences that would keep them from, from you know, being uh, uh, close or, or sh- feeling like they shared an identity. Suddenly they didn't have that problem anymore. We were all Americans at that time. And, you know, there was solidarity in a way that I maybe I haven't seen ever in my life. And certainly it's gone downhill since. So there's something to be said about that. And then Dr. Siegel says, we're looking for a unity and diversity. A shallower form of pluralism would be just based on tolerance. It doesn't require us to transform. Hmm. I think that's food for thought. A shallower form of pluralism is based on tolerance. So you, could, you can tolerate diversity. You can maybe maybe hate it or reject it, but keep it to yourself, and everyone can live together, even though we don't really get along or share an identity. He's saying that that's shallower. What's better is transforming so that we do have that commonality, that we do share that identity. We, we change, we make changes within ourselves such that we can make that happen, and we can have a unity in diversity. Wouldn't that be, a, wouldn't that be something? Unity in diversity. That's what the United States of America should be. 
the, the great melting pot, right? And instead, we all have private worldviews. So that brings us to talking about these worldviews. Um, we're not going to talk about all 12 of them for the same reason that uh, Dr. Siegel said he wouldn't talk about all 12 of them, just in the entrance of time. But we, we will talk about the polarities um, in all four quadrants that we lay down. The first one is materialism. Now, materialism, before I get into what uh, Dr. Siegel said about it, which I think is really interesting and I want to get into, um, material, it's important to understand materialism is what we all already believe. In, in the modern Western world, we all believe that um, the world is made of matter, uh, that matter obeys physical laws, and that um, everything exists in that way, material and physical and nothing else. There is no spirit there is no soul. There is no God. Everything can be explained with the laws of physics. Everything can be explained from mathematical, you know, formulas um, and, uh, and things that are hard to explain, like consciousness. Well, we can write them off as emergent from physical material things. And that's all there is, and that's all there ever will be. End of story. It's a scientific paradigm. It's an atheistic scientific paradigm. But... Dr. Siegel takes a different approach, which I thought was brilliant. So let me just tell you that. He says, God is aiming for materialization. This is a way of thinking about what the mystery of incarnation is all about. He says, Christianity has emphasized the fact that the divine became a human body and died. There's something more mysterious about materialism than meets the eye. And then there's a quote from, uh, from Goethe that goes like this. How nature from solid forms of earth lets the spirit issue. Spirit needs the bones to fully realize itself. That's what, uh, that's what uh, Dr. Siegel added. And so let's get back to this beginning part where he says God is aiming for materialization. What that means is, and what the message of Christianity is, God became flesh. So whatever this noumenal, supernatural, spiritual, potential thing that we, that, that we understand is a mystery and we try to write off and we try to explain and we can't, you know, whatever that is, it wants to be made real. It wants to be made material. And this is a very Whiteheadian idea. The potential wants to be actualized. Whatever that is, God wants to be made, made materially real. And the pantheists agree with this. You know, God... It, it, God is the material cosmos, something like that. Um, and then when, when Dr. Siegel says that spirit needs the bones to fully realize itself, what he means is that there's something about reality. You know, if God becomes matter, if God becomes the material cosmos, that God is, God is becoming something that it wasn't before. It's becoming more than it was before, you know? Whatever the potentiality is that we call God, whatever it is that makes reality and experience possible, um, that is only potential until it becomes actualized, until it's made manifest, until it's incarnated. And so you've got this, you've got this interesting mystical component to materialism that I never really considered before. And Goethe says that, how nature from solid forms of earth, from, from innate, you know, uh, matter, let the spirit issue. So the spirit, 
the spirit emerges from or the spirit inhabits um, what nature creates, what what matter is, is made available for it to inhabit. And this is a, an idea that's common to religious um Traditions. It's common to Judaism and Christianity, the idea that the body is the temple of God. What is the temple of God? It's the place that God goes to rest, the place where you can find God, right, in the Holy of Holies, the place where the Spirit goes to rest. That's, that's you and I. And I think that's very, very interesting. I think his use of the word incarnation is interesting. And I, I took that exact same notion from reading Whitehead, like what Whitehead was explaining when he talks about potentiality being actualized, when he talks about this process of concrescence. Um, to me, that sounds like incarnation. It sounds like Whitehead trying to trying to make a uh, scientific way of saying what what religious people have been saying for for generations. And that brings us to spiritualism or spiritism. Um, and this one, I think, was covered by Dr. McDermott, but it goes like this. Or I'll, hit, you know, I'll quote what I can here in, in uh, paraphrase form. He says, the, uh, spiritualism is the opposite worldview of materialism. Steiner argued it was the dominant paradigm for most of the world, for most of our history, and emerged from spiritualism. So spiritism emerges, or excuse me, materialism emerges from spiritualism. He says, only in modern times and largely in the West has materialism become the dominant paradigm. It is the ultimate core reality that matter comes from spirit, not the other way around. Therefore, it's the truer perspective of the two. So spiritualism is the idea that matter comes from, uh, comes from spirit. Spirit comes first. So the phenomenal, or excuse me, the, the noumenal, the uh, potentiality, you know, these words that I like to use to describe God, that that was something that was there first, and matter came, matter emerged from it, or, 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 or something along those lines, where the materialists say exactly the opposite. They say there is no spirit, there is no consciousness, it's something that emerges from, uh, from matter, it all follows from the mathematical laws that, that govern the cosmos, and it's an inevitability. It's an inevitability, you know, that, that, that matter will come to be sentient, and it's just par for the course. Spiritualism says, no, no, sentience comes first, spirit comes first, and matter emerges from that. All right, then Matt says something to Robert. He, Matt says, matter is an embodiment of spirit, but spirit needs bodies. This is what I meant about when, when if God can become actualized as the world, if God can become materially real, then it has a dynamic it didn't have before. It has this dynamic of reality. It has this other half of itself that, that is, exists in a realm that, that uh, it didn't before in this material, spatial, temporal you know, way, this way that allows for experience, this way that allows for, for motion and action and interaction. Um, and, and that simply doesn't exist in the noumenal. It doesn't exist in potentiality by itself. So here Matt, Matt says that um, spirits need bodies, right? What is a spirit if it's not inhabiting a body? Something like potential, you know? But as soon as it inhabits a body, then it, it's something that's more complete, more complex. It's more. And it's real, right? Because a body's real. And that's what, that's what Alfred North Whitehead says. He says that things are made real. Potentiality is made real by coming into something that it's already real. You know, an actual entity, something like you and I. 
and things, things that don't exist in the, in the material world, that doesn't mean they don't exist, just that they don't exist in, in this way. But they can come from wherever it is they come from. They can enter into our experience, and then they become real because they're, because they're part of us, and we're real. And then, uh, and then Robert asks, uh, or rather Robert says, what is caused is not the cause, because the cause is spiritual. So you can have this whole materialistic outlook of cause and effect. You can have this deterministic, you know, domino effect cosmos, this mathematical clockwork cosmos. And he says, you know, that, uh, that, that's the efficient cause, as Aristotle would say, but it's not the final cause. He says the final cause is spiritual. Interesting. And that brings us to idealism. So now we're on the other axis here. And immediately, um, Plato gets brought up again. Um, so the word nous comes to mind. And, and so the, I'll, I'll paraphrase for you, but he says, nous, the realm of ideas, you know, the absolute that created the world. So this idea, the, this platonic world of forms, or realm of ideas, um, this is something that creates the world. And Dr. McDermott says, it's very like the relation of Atman to Brahman in the Indian tradition. Ideas are ideals that live in the mind of God. The ideals are real, knowable, necessary, and they are mostly defined in our culture by just learning to speak language. And that was a criticism at the end. You know, he was saying that we sort of exchange this idea of um, um, understanding ideas, of really understanding ideas and what, that, what they are, what that means. We replace that by substituting language. So if I learn how to speak and I learn the meaning of words, then I understand ideas. And, and Dr. McDermott is saying that is, that is the furthest thing from the truth. There's way more to understanding ideas than understanding language. So let me go back to the beginning here where he says this idea of, um, of a world of forms, of this, um, this sort of abstract, noumenal world of forms that's necessary for uh, the actual world, for the creation of the actual world. You might, again, use Whiteheadian language and talk about this world of ideas as uh, potentiality and the world as actuality. And they're necessary for one another. And that's the point Matt was making before, which I think is brilliant and under the radar for, for a lot of people, that, that potentiality and actuality need one another. I, I, I think of them as one unity anyway. I think of everything as one unity because I'm a mystical thinker. Um, so, so God needs the material cosmos just as much as the material cosmos needs God. I mean, we think in our religious traditions that God created the heavens and the earth. And this, this is accepting that. This, this frame is accepting that wholeheartedly, but also saying that, you know, God, of course, creates the heavens and the earth, but the heavens and the earth impact God as well. Something, something like that. Something very difficult for modern people to understand, very difficult for Christians and Jews to understand, really. But the Vedic tradition and the Hindus don't have a hard time understanding this at all, and I love that Dr. McDermott brings this analogy into the picture. He said, thinking about the potentiality and the actuality like this, in the way that Plato would or Whitehead would, it's very much 
an, much more ancient tradition than that. It goes back to Vedanta. It goes back to the Upanishads. It goes back to ancient Indian religion, which is the oldest religion in the world. And they have this idea that there's something like God they call Brahman. And Brahman constitutes the completeness of everything. It's like the cosmic soul, you might say. And then there's this idea of Atman, and that's what you and I are. We're sort of a representation of this Brahman. So Brahman is this noumenal thing that exists uh, in potentiality. And Atman is the, is the real thing. It's, it's Brahman made real. It's God made flesh. It's the human soul compared to the cosmic soul. And when you die, your, your Atman just returns to Brahman. It just becomes what it, what it used to be. It goes back to the source and is reborn as a new form. And there you have reincarnation in the sort of um, Hindu and Buddhist way of, way of thinking about it. So Brahman exists in this realm of ideas. Nus, as Plato would say. And Atman is the representation of that made real. And then he says, I ideas are ideals that live in the mind of God. So Whitehead would call those eternal objects that exist in the, in the mind of God. The ideals are real, knowable, necessary, and are mostly defined in our culture simply by learning to speak language. And again, that's a criticism of the idea. Ideas themselves are something noumenal. I remember Whitehead brought this up when he talked about Descartes, where, De where Descartes was talking about um, the idea of the sun being different from the sun itself. Like, we don't really have access to the sun itself. I can't go up there and knock on the sun's door. All I do is look at it from a, from a distance, back in time, right? I'm looking at it from back in time because it takes all that time for the light to get to me. What am I seeing? Well, I'm experiencing only this idea of the sun in my mind. And Whitehead says that objects are made of ideas. And I think, and I, I called Whitehead an idealist for saying that or for agreeing with Descartes on that point. Uh, but I digress. That brings us to realism, which is the final opposite we're going to talk about. Realism as opposed to idealism. Um, for those people who don't know, if you listen to the podcast, you do. But idealism is the idea that something like mind is fundamental. You know, materialism, um, realism, um, physicalism, all of these isms are going to think that substance is primary. You know, that quantum waves, energy, matter, those are the things that build up to become everything that exists. Um, and so that's what's fundamental. Idealism says, no, mind is fundamental. So it's going to be more similar to spiritualism that we talked about just, just before idealism, something like that. Transcendental idealism actually goes so far as to say that the material world is something like an illusion. It's something like a dream that happens within a mind, and mind is all that really exists. And it's, really, again, not unlike this idea of Brahman from the Hindu tradition. So to contrast that, we have realism. And Dr. Siegel goes along these lines. He says, how do we actualize ideas? What a realist like Whitehead wants to say is that these ideals are deficient in actuality, and they become what they're meant to be when they ingress or incarnate into an actual experience. He says we all start as realists. So you can imagine as, as infants or as children, we all think like this. 
He says, Steiner has a participatory understanding of the mind's relationship to reality. Okay, Steiner has a participatory understanding of the mind's relationship to reality. So there is a participation uh, between mind and reality, that they participate in one another. That's another way of saying that they are connected to each other uh, in a way that is inseparable. And that's another way of saying that they're one thing, as far as I'm concerned. Mind and reality. Um, so that, to me, is a more of an idealistic uh, perspective. And so this, he's describing this as being Steiner's perspective. There's another way, uh, another example or uh, association that comes to mind, uh, which is something that um, Jordan Peterson talked about in his book, Maps of Meaning, where he said, reading Jean Piaget's um, uh, work on child development, he was blown away to hear Jean Piaget say that, uh, and I'm going to butcher this quote too, but he says something like, um, oh boy, I'm going I'm to, I'm trying to think of the actual quote and it's going to derail me. But he basically says that as a child develops its understanding of itself and its understanding of the world, that those things happen simultaneously. And that's not, a, that's not an earth-shattering thing to think about. But when you abstract that idea, which Piaget does, it's something like the creation of, this, of the individual human being as a self and the creation of the world are simultaneous. So when you think when you're born and you open up your eyes to sentience, let's say, um, you and the world are sort of born together, you know, because the world is, for you, something unique, it's the way the world is to you. It's not like that for anybody else. So the birth of the world of your subjective perspective of the world and, and, and the birth of yourself as, as an individual are one thing. So there's a participation between the world and yourself, between reality and the mind. And Dr. Siegel says, Whitehead said, in order to have knowledge we do have to make reference to these eternal forms that don't change. So there's something that connects, that's necessary to connect experience. And it's something eternal that doesn't change. And Whitehead calls these eternal objects. Um, it's very, very wishy-washy to me what he means by that, but he's said on different occasions that their potentiality, that their their potential for experience. He said that their sense data and emotional forms, all of these various things, but that they are something like what Plato talks about when he talks about the forms that exist, the, uh, and also what Jung talks about when he talks about archetypes. All right, he says, uh, Steiner talks about the world requiring consciousness in order to achieve completion. That a world without consciousness is incomplete. He says the whole world apart from the human being is an enigma and the human being is its solution. The world would be incomplete without our conscious knowledge of it. He says, Steiner says, knowledge does not belong only to a person but to the being and growth of the world. Knowledge is the completion of a circuit that runs through our being out into the world and back again. The thinking process is itself a function of the world process. The thinking process is a function of the world process. See, that's the participation between mind and reality. 
So what does he mean here when he says, Steiner talks about the world requiring consciousness in order to achieve completion? That the world without consciousness is incomplete. So this reminds me of um, David Chalmers' book, The Conscious Mind. He's got a famous thought experiment there. I don't know if he invented it or not, but that's the first place I encountered it. It's about Mary. If you know this story, you know it, but I'll tell it anyway. Mary is supposed to be, again, this is a thought experiment. Mary is a scientist. She knows, she's the world's expert. She knows everything there is to know about perception, about how sight works, about how light works, about, you know, everything you could ever want to know about how visual perception works. Mary knows it all. She knows the math. She knows the physics. She knows the biology. She knows the chemistry. She knows all of it. And then David Chalmers says, Mary's blind. She knows everything there is to know about visual perception, but she's never seen, uh, well, maybe he says she's colorblind. Let's, let's go with that. She's never seen color. And then one day, she's magically cured of her colorblindness, and she sees something red for the very first time. And the question he poses is, does Mary now know something more about visual perception than she did before? Indubitably, right? Of course. She's had an experience of red for the first time. You know? Of course she has information and knowledge she didn't have until she had that experience. And this is the argument here that Steiner, you know, that Matt Matt is proposing through the words of Steiner, that, that the world requires consciousness to be complete. So the idea is if the world exists, if the cosmos exists, and there's no conscious creature that's around to experience it. Does it exist? If suddenly there's a conscious creature there to experience it, is it now more than it was before? I think we would all agree, yes, because now we have the experience of the world. Now Mary is seen red. There's something, there's something more to it. There's some completion there. And that's what he's pointing to. The world apart from the human being, is an enigma. And the human being is its solution. I love it. I love it. All right. He says, the realist wants to say, if you're making ideas preeminent and saying that the world is just full of pale imitations of these ideal forms, you are missing the participatory understanding of knowledge, which draws on forms but integrates them with actual existing things. So there's, so again, it's, it's not like spirit is enough all by itself. It needs, to, it needs to find a body. It needs to become actualized. It's not like the idea of a sun is enough. There has to be a burning ball of gas in the sky, right? That, that knowledge and the objective reality participate in one another. It's not even clear what they are without you know, the other one. It goes back to the, the, the Taoist dictum that I brought up earlier. What is beauty if there is no ugliness? What is the sun if there's no idea of the sun, if there's no consciousness of the sun? And it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of something from quantum mechanics that I love to talk about that I don't understand well enough to talk about, but will anyway. The observer effect. You know, the idea in quantum physics is that objective reality is basically 
a wave function, you know, uh, a probability wave function, you know, I don't even know what that means exactly, but I know it's described as a wave. And the moment it's observed, that wave function collapses, according to, you know, classical quantum mechanics, it collapses into a certain reality. So it requires, right, a certain reality, an actualized reality, requires an observation, requires a mind, it requires consciousness, you know, it requires that in order to cease being potential and to be something actual, to be something real. And having been made real, it's more than it was without it. It's complete. And then Robert asks, but how are they there? Are they mental? And Matt says, for Whitehead, they are possibilities awaiting actuality. And they do exist in the mind of God. God is an actuality. That brings me to my conclusion. Well, we didn't get much directly from Steiner here, as far as I'm concerned. But we do see an interesting congruence between the ideas of Steiner and the philosophical models of such people as Plato, Whitehead, Goethe, and even Vedic philosophers of ancient India. I remember being impressed myself in reading Steiner, how much overlap there was with contemporary ideas of, of Jung. At the time, excuse me, at the same time, I find myself hesitant to embrace his ideas wholeheartedly. There is an empirical side of me, deeply ingrained from our modern scientific era, that recoils from some of his ideas and responds to others. When Steiner says that there is a spiritual component to ourselves, and the world, um, and the world that is uh, that's mysterious, there's there's a spiritual component to ourselves and the world that is mysterious. I believe that. I am sympathetic to the idea that the world is far more than we're capable of perceiving. Reality is far more than we're capable of knowing. When on the other hand, he proposes that a, that a spiritually developed person will see auras of energy emanating from creatures and objects, I am vehemently skeptical. When he says that human beings can exercise their spiritual faculties, and in so doing, develop untapped parts of the human experience, I believe him. I've been in the mystical psychedelic state. I've studied quantum physics, and I, so I know there is more to, to us than meets the eye. And here, when Dr. Siegel and McDermott speak of various categorical ways of understanding the world, developed uniquely from various paths of knowledge, sensing, feeling, willing, and thinking, I cannot help but to agree. We can see phenomenology or existentialism, for instance, as arising from our experience of sensing or feeling, just as we can see idealism emerging from our experience of thinking. Then, when Dr. Siegel adds that Steiner defined 12 distinct worldviews from these four paths of knowledge and links them to the Zodiac, I immediately pull away. What do you mean the Zodiac? How do you figure? Are we in the realm of astrology now? What just happened? I'm skeptical of woo, and it's strange coming from me who has come to embrace so much of it. But then my mind gets to turning and I think, Zodiacs have emerged independently across disparate cultures from Greece to China. It's sort of hard to explain. 
And the number 12 has deeply ancient mystical significance. We have 12 months of the year, 12 labors of Heracles, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Christ. And I wonder why such patterns repeat. I wonder if there's something to it. I wonder if Steiner is right and I cannot see past my own biases. I wonder. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.